Hello and welcome to Byline Radio and What the Papers Don't Say with me, Adrian Goldberg. Today our guests include Louise Calvi from Refugee Action on the UK's latest plan to help Ukrainian refugees. And Byline Times writer Sam Bright calls on Andrew Neil to apologise for comments he made about Carol Cadwallader, the journalist who exposed the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which identified that millions of Facebook users had their data collected without their consent and which was used in the Trump presidential campaign and critics claim anyway in the EU referendum campaign. First though just an update on the latest from Ukraine. The war moved closer to the EU and NATO member Poland yesterday when Russia bombed a military base 15 miles from Poland. The United States has warned Russia that it will feel quotes the full force of NATO if it strays over the border. Peace talks between Russia and Ukraine have resumed, but in the meantime, an apartment block in the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv, has been targeted, killing at least two people and injuring 12 others. And a pregnant woman and her newly delivered baby have died after Russia bombed a maternity hospital in one of the most shocking episodes of the invasion in Mariupol last week. The UK is planning to offer households £350 a month to uh, house refugees fleeing the war in Ukraine. Let's talk now to Sam Bright, who is the investigations editor of the Byline Times. Sam, good morning to you, or good afternoon as it now is. Uh, What is the latest on this? It's been well trailed over the weekend. Yes, on the the, um, refugees, uh, Ukrainian refugees, the government's announced a new package, um, which is um, 350 quid, as you mentioned, um, a month, um, for those who will uh, agree to host a Ukrainian refugee in their home, one or more Ukra- Ukrainian refugees in their home. They have to do it for a minimum of um, six months um, and a maximum, I think, of three years, and the refugees will be able to work and claim benefits um, in that time. Um, crucially, though, if you agree to accept more than one Ukrainian refugee, you don't actually get uh, another 350 quid. I think 350 quid looks like the maximum that you'll get a month for hosting Ukrainian refugees. Um, in in your home, I mean, it, you know, it's it's been criticised as another way in which the government's response to this crisis has been insufficient. Um, we look to be outsourcing the solution to um, private households rather than the government taking responsibility. Yeah, although people would say there are many British people who are willing to to help out and the government is dipping into the coffers, obviously funded by the taxpayer ultimately, to try and ensure that ordinary people who do want to help Ukrainians are in a position to do so. So I think many people will see parallels with the kinder transport scheme. This was the scheme through which my father arrived in the UK just before the Second World War when the children... Jewish children were allowed to leave Nazi Germany. So a very interesting thread today by Jonathan Friedland, the broadcaster and journalist, pointing out that although Britain does like to pat itself on the back for its warm and welcoming attitude towards refugees, of course, one of the key points of kinder transport was that it was only the children. Jewish adults were not welcomed by the majority of the population, it would seem, in the UK prior to World War II. Perhaps a slightly different situation now, but I think at least ordinary people who want to do something, Sam, will, under this system, be allowed to do so. 
They will, yes, certainly. And um, in that regard, it's it's to be encouraged. I think the thing is that nobody would object to this sort of scheme if it was if it was sort of a supplementary scheme to a very a very generous government offering of the sort that we've perhaps seen in the EU. You know, we're never going to match Poland. We're never going to match those Eastern European states or Germany even in terms of our response and the amount of refugees that we take in. But at the minute, we're not even getting close um, to that response. And so this being one of the primary ways in which we're accepting asylum seekers and refugees from Ukraine does seem to fall quite short um, alongside um, the, the, the extension of the family visa offering, which has obviously had so many, um, so many flaws over the past couple of weeks. Yeah, I know that I spoke to Bella Sankey recently for the Byline Times podcast, and you'll be able to listen to this programme again on the Byline Times podcast. Bella Sankey from Detention Action saying that although the government had estimated that 200,000 people could come in via the family visa route from Ukraine, it was actually very difficult to work out where that calculation had come come from. Uh, At the time, that seemed to be the limit of the government's commitment, but we're now talking about an unlimited scheme. They have put no cap on the figures. So if people say they are generous and are willing to be generous enough to host a refugee Ukrainian family, then I suppose in some ways, as you say, you're, you're privatising the care of those Ukrainian refugees. But people who care about it at least do have a mechanism now by which they can achieve that. Mm, yeah, yeah, certainly. And um, it w- I mean, it would be it will be really interesting to see the generosity of um, the British people. I'm, I'm really fascinated to see how many thousands of people accept Ukrainians into, into their homes. Um, and really, the government is staking its success on that, on, that, on that generosity. So, you know, the British people could, you know, you know they'll, they'll very much help Ukrainian refugees. Um, but, in, 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 you know, if they don't, then the government might have a few problems on it. Now. Yeah, well, no, but it's an interesting point. And, you know, this is more than dancing on the head of a pin, really. This is quite an important distinction that you've introduced, because if the British people are as generous as many people hope they will be and many of us feel that they will be, then in a sense that solves the government problem for them, doesn't it? If, however, the British public, for whatever reason, isn't as generous in welcoming Ukrainian refugees as many people hope, then there is a real problem because the government will still be under pressure to try and house more Ukrainian refugees than it is currently apparently willing to do so under its own steam, as it were, albeit with a population that that seems to be unwilling to do that. So that that, that maybe is a problem up ahead. Uh, Let's have a, a thought as well about uh, the criticism of Priti Patel today by the Liberal Dem uh, leader, Ed Davey, is called for, uh, for Priti Patel to, to be sacked by Boris Johnson because of her handling of the refugee crisis so far. Yeah, I mean, it seems as though um, you, could have, you could have said that multiple times over the past few years, um, not just in relation to this crisis. I, I think the thing is that this seems to be testing Boris Johnson's patience in particular, um, uh, mishandling of this of this issue. Um, obviously, we've seen some really repulsive things coming out of the Home Office over the past couple of years, from you know d- potentially deploying the Navy to push back asylum seekers crossing the Channel. Um, you know, the plans potentially though though they'll never come to fruition. But the fact that the Home Office is is speculating on them is quite disturbing. You know, sending asylum seekers off to 
Pacific Islands to have their um, to have their status checked. Um, yet, you know, there have been there have been no qualms from Boris Johnson about those ideas. But obviously, this is a this is a crisis that's enveloping the the world and the focus of the British population, which is as as you've said. Is very wants to see more generosity towards uh, refugees from Ukraine, and so I think political necessity is causing Boris Johnson to to think more harshly towards Priti Patel's natural um, sort of um, yeah, her natural attitude towards asylum seekers, which is one of um, is one of crime and punishment. Um, rather than natural generosity. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you, you hit on a really interesting point there, Sam. And by all means, if you're listening, incidentally, wherever you're listening to this, to Byline Radio around the world, if you've got any comments, any contribution to make, as long as it's sensible and reasonable, uh, we'll welcome you on. Just uh, request access to the microphone. There has been, really going back to Theresa May's time, the hostile environment towards migrants. And Priti Patel as Home Secretary has very much seized on that. The Nationality and Borders Bill has been criticised for its failure to give safe routes to refugees fleeing persecution. People who arrive in this country having had no safe route to get here, but who perhaps incredibly bravely crossed the channel in a small boat risk under the Nationality and Borders Bill, if and when it becomes law, imprisonment. They risk being criminalised. So there is, and I referenced this in a broadcast last week, this kind of screeching U-turn by the government, whereby immigrants are very much told they're not welcome, albeit that Britain does have some allowance for migrants, but the, the broad image of the UK government's stance on migration is that really we don't want any more refugees here. This was a message that was emphasised as well through the whole Brexit campaign. And now suddenly the same British public is being encouraged to, to welcome migrants into their homes, albeit that circumstances have changed. But there is this, I think, mm. real difficulty for a government uh, and its supporters and in the media who've spent so long telling us to fear migrants, to be hostile towards them, to other them, to now say, ah, bring them on in, <laughs> give, you, give you home to one. Well, exactly. But I mean, this is the this is potentially the point about outsourcing, isn't it? That it, it it sort of it makes it seem as though it's a policy being adopted by the British public by us as individuals rather than the government. It's it's sort of the government saying, "Oh, if you would like to do this, you can." Um, you know, we're not compelling you to do so, which allows the government to walk this tightrope, as you say, between the demands of the public that want a more generous approach and its natural conservatism towards asylum seekers. And I think that this whole crisis just sort of exposes um, the government's attitude for what it is regarding asylum seekers, because I think it's worried about the fact that if it shows uh, a more of an open-door policy to, uh, towards uh, Ukrainian asylum seekers, then people will rightly question, and the principle will have been set that the government should um, show similar levels of sympathy towards refugees from other parts of the world. And um, people will rightfully question why we're accepting Ukrainian refugees and not those from Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria. And that puts the government, as you say, considering it's the laws that it's trying to put into place, not merely its principles, that, that will put the, the, the government in a really sticky situation. And at the minute, um, yeah, I, I, this this policy is 
is one of the few ways that it's trying to get around that. But um, I'd say it's probably failing to walk that tightrope for the minute. Interesting thoughts. Uh, Sam Bright with us here on Byline Radio. Sam is the investigations editor at the Byline Times. My name's Adrian Goldberg. You're listening to Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast with our Monday to Friday noon programme, What the Papers Don't Say. We're talking about the UK's attitude towards Ukrainian refugees and a new scheme that would give householders £350 a month for accommodating refugees. I also want to talk to Sam specifically in a moment about his calls for an apology to Carol Cadwallader, the journalist who exposed the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Sam is calling for an apology from the esteemed broadcaster and journalist Andrew Neil. We'll find out why in just a moment. But if you're new to this, let me just explain who we are. This is Byline Radio, and we're part of the Byline Times empire. What's that, I hear you say? Well, the Byline Times is a brilliant monthly newspaper, and you can find out how to subscribe to it by going to our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. So you can take out a subscription or a membership. And if you do so, you get a fantastic monthly paper, a proper old fashioned newspaper. But your subscription or membership will not only help to fund that newspaper, it will help to fund the website, helps to fund the Byline Times podcast, Byline TV and this radio output as well. So if you can afford to do it, and I know times are very hard for many people, but if you can afford to do it, please take out a subscription or a membership to the Byline Times at bylinetimes.com. Now, uh, Sam, talk to me about then these calls for an apology for Carol Cadwallader. The, the, the reason that Carol Cadwallader is such a significant and important journalist of our time is that she exposed the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which revealed that data from Facebook had been sold. It had been sold to Cambridge Analytica. It had been garnered without the permission of millions of Facebook users and was then used both to support President Trump's campaign, uh, Senator Ted Ted Cruz's campaign in the United States, and some people maintain was also used to influence the EU referendum in 2016. That's that's a bit of the background to it. Why does Carol Cadwallader, in your view, deserve an apology from Andrew Neil? Well, there's um, the first point, which is on a very basic human level, in that um, Andrew Neil, for one, said that Carol's reporting on Cambridge Analytica, he, he, well, he shared uh, articles suggesting that it was a conspiracy theory, um, which is completely ridiculous. Um, for one, um, Facebook has been fined five billion pounds sorry five billion dollars for four billion pounds in the united states um because of the cambridge analytics analytica scandal it's been fined half a million pounds by the ICO, ico in the uk for the cambridge analytica scandal hence essentially admitting that this took place and that carol's reporting was accurate uh, I mean, there's a question there as to why we're only able to impose a £500,000 fine, which was the maximum that the ICO was able to impose, whereas the United States was able to impose £5 billion, But that's a, that's a different question entirely. Um, so Andrew Neil suggested that that story was a conspiracy theory, which evidently it wasn't. You know, the, there was undercover reporting exposing many of Cambridge Analytica's dodgy practices. So, you know, he's wrong, he's wrong on that front. And to suggest that Carol uh, peddled a conspiracy theory um, is, I mean, it's itself a conspiracy theory from Andrew Neil. Um, and then off the, off, off the back of that, he suggested that 
Carol is a mad cat woman, that he's called her Carol Cadswallop. It's just sort of this sort of personal, vindictive um, campaign a bit against Carol Cadwallader, who, as you say, has led one of the most complex and significant investigations of the modern era. Um, and, of course, this has, this has significance now, extra significance, because Carol has investigated the ties between um, the establishment, between the Trump campaign, between the Brexit campaign, and um, Russian interference. Um, and now Andrew Neil has been tweeting regularly and justifiably about the oligarchs that have been sanctioned by the UK government, by the EU and the US. And we all are now aware of, uh, or more aware of, the ways in which Russia has attempted to interfere in our politics. And yet, um, you know, whereas he was previously smearing Carol on social media for her stories on this front. He's not acknowledging the fact that all along she was one of the few people who was pointing a finger at these issues and calling on people to be more interested in them. And that, I mean, that shows, I think, a, a lack of uh, journalistic ethics and just sort of personal convictions from Andrew Neil. And yeah, I think it's the right thing to do. Yeah, I should uh, point out that Carol, uh, she's written about this on Twitter as far back in 2018. She was saying that she didn't want an apology herself, but she did say that the crazy cat lady criticism or slur against her has been adapted as an internet meme and, as you say, has been used in the years since then. And Carol's argument is that this isn't just abuse or criticism that you might deem as fair game within the journalistic world but it is actually misogynistic and mm. it's the kind of abuse that encourages women journalists in particular to keep their heads down for fear of being criticised and she referred Andrew Neil to the BBC. Uh, the BBC accepted that the tweet was inappropriate and Andrew Neil has taken down that initial tweet but of course these things tend to gather legs and Carol also made the point that some of the language used by Andrew Neil echoed the words of Aaron Banks of the Leave EU campaign, who, in different contexts, Andrew Neil has been a colleague of, or has been involved with anyway. Uh, he's, um, uh, I'm, I'm just reading now from Carol's tweet saying that Andrew Neil's previous relationship with Aaron Banks was cited in Banks' memoir, in which Banks writes that he attended the Addison Club, founded by Andrew Neil, at his suggestion to raise funds for the Leave campaign. So uh, we're not going to get into the ongoing legal battle between Carol Cadwallader and Aaron Banks, but again, it's this link suggesting that Andrew Neil was perhaps being rather less than fair and rather less than open about his connection with Aaron Banks when he made these criticisms of Carol Cadwallader. Yeah, and if you look at what Andrew Neil has repeatedly said about and to Carol, is that he claims that she was reporting on an ideological basis, as in... She knew the end point that she wanted to get to and then sort of filled in the blanks from there. Uh, for one, you know, she's, <laughs> if that was the case, she just filled in the blanks and proved the case. Um, so regardless of whether it was ideological or not, she's proven to be right. Um, and secondly, um, you know, I think it's very rich now 
given what we've seen over the course of Andrew Neil's career since he made those comments, to claim that someone else is being ideological. I mean, we well know that Andrew Neil is the chairman of The Spectator, which is a right-wing, increasingly so, um, publication. Um, we also know, of course, that he co-founded GB News, um, which he left you know, quite soon afterwards, after it turned into basically a mouthpiece, mouthpiece for Nigel Farage. So some, some people call it KGB News these days. Well, precisely, precisely. <laughs> and I would encourage people to, to research why that is the case. But Andrew Neil clearly you know, has certain political predilections and um yeah the hypocrisy in claiming that carol cadwallader is is somehow is biased or her journalism has been tainted by her own is it's just ridiculous yeah stay there if you would uh, sam i want to uh, bring uh, another voice into the conversation and if you're looking at your phone you'll see in the bottom left hand corner there's a little microphone icon uh, and if you want to join in our conversation just tap on that and as long as you've got something reasonable to say We'll let you say it. Uh, Ian is joining us, I think, from Birmingham. Hello, Ian. Oh, I thought he was anyway. I thought he was Hello, joining no, us from Birmingham. No, can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Sorry. Yeah, go on, Ian. Good yeah. old mute on. Um, hi, guys. You okay? Yeah, good. Thank you, mate. Okay, go on. So What's your point? Here? What I'd like to do is look, just talk about the Andrew Neil um, part and the nexus that comes along with Brexit on top of that. Now, I'll just get the feeling... But the reason why they attacked Carol so much, and you may have seen um, Paul Staines and others have chimed in yesterday, some threads yesterday on her, yeah, is that it's all about protecting Brexit. If we, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a Remainer, I'll admit that, if we um, can prove Russian interference in Brexit, if we can tell the general public this was fraudulently done, not for the benefit of the UK, but for the benefit of Putin and others, then Brexit could fall. And I'll just get the sense it's all about the protection of Brexit. Well, what? That's a really interesting point. And to, to pick up, by the way, I'll, I'll, I'll let Sam comment on that in a moment, Ian. But uh, Carol's continuing to tweet about this as well. She might. And talking about kind of an orchestrated campaign against her. And she posts up a, an article from The Spectator. And, of course, Sam has already explained the links between Andrew Neil and The Spectator. This was an article in November 2020. Carol Cadwallader should now return her Orwell Prize, uh, something from Russia Today in 2020, with her journalism deemed untrue. Will award-winning Carol Cadwallader get to keep her gongs? All of this designed to undermine Carol Cadwallader, yet what she has done is brought into the public light really important information. I should just come back to you, though, Ian, and say that, according to the Information Commissioner anyway, Cambridge Analytica, which was the, the recipient of this information from Facebook, was not involved in the EU referendum. That was their official verdict after a three-year investigation. They say Cambridge Analytica was not involved in the 2016 vote beyond some initial inquiries made in the early stages. But nevertheless, even at that level, the question has to be why? And was there any other kind of interference uh, yeah, can, planned or mooted or, or suggested? Can I just say, I mean, Cambridge Analytica goes to Steve Bannon, doesn't it, as well? Mm. And if you now see what Steve Bannon is saying about Putin and everything, and you now see what individuals are saying, and it's come out in the open. I mean, this extends all the way to Lebedev and Boris Johnson, and it extends to Chelsea and Roman Abramovich. It extends 
the Putin influence was always to weaken the West in whatever way, make him make us compliant on oil or gas, make us compliant on his money, make us compliant politically and and weaken. Now I can see. I can see. Uh, um, of... Again, sorry, and just to step in there, yeah. as you know, of course, you know, Egveni Lebedev denies doing anything improper. <laughs> his name has been in the the papers over the weekend, uh, including his own. He wrote a big article for the Evening Standard, you know, insisting that he hasn't been a stooge of Putin, that he hasn't been doing Russia's work. He's the guy who's very. He's, he's the son of a, a KGB officer. And he has become very friendly with Boris Johnson over the years and with various members of our, if you like, the social circle, people like Elton John, you know, high-ranking entertainers and so on. But he insists he's done nothing wrong. But I suppose there are suspicions, not specifically about him, but because of the way that Putin's state works, that people who've done well out of Putin owe him a debt of honour and Indeed. in the West are working on his behalf. And it's like the it's like the uh, thing that Cohen was talking about, Trump being the mafia boss, is that you don't have to have direct links, it, you just have to have a nod and a wink. And, and my, my issue is, is that it's all interlinked. And let's be honest here, if this was not a Tory MP, a Labour MP or a Lib Dem MP, a Green SNP, it doesn't matter who it is, was had all these links, had all these problems. Do we honestly believe they'd still be PM today? Mm. Do we do do we honestly believe that? I don't. I believe you know, if Jeremy Corbyn had won the election if Keir Starmer, if any of them, Ed Davey, you know, it doesn't matter, Nicola Sturgeon had all these links that we see. And that comes back to what Andrew Neal's trying to do in through the spectator, is that he now kind of wants to link it all to Carol and put the blame that she's this mad woman, for bond of a better word, yeah, with a tinfoil hat on. And Sam quite rightly said, it's all been proven. Everything's been proven. And yet, what do we get from the press? Nothing, relatively nothing. We've got you guys that are doing fantastic work, which is why I subscribed. Um, it's got so many others who are trying to do the work. But the general public aren't aware of this, you know. You, you haven't got millions listening to us now and understanding this. It's all opaque it's all party gate worked because it was easy for the average person in the street to understand does anybody really understand how the tentacles of all this reach out and grab and and the influences that people like andrew neil do have on it yeah i I, I think i think you're spot on i think carol for the first time sort of pulled back that veil and they jumped on they, they really jumped on her um to try and you know shut shut this sort of story down i think there's a there's i think there's two important things to say one of which is russia's it's what we need to look at is one whether russia had the intent to influence the referendum and why that was the case and i think it's pretty clear that putin has um wanted to sponsor euroscepticism across europe we've seen it in hungary he's got a very sympathetic attitude or as he did prior to this present crisis with the Orban regime. Um, he's clearly built um, support with Marine Le Pen and the National Front. You know, the, the National Front in France got considerable funding, um, I think it was 2014, from Russian sources. And Le Pen has been 
has basically parroted a lot of Putin's line. So Putin clearly sees, as you say, uh, Euroscepticism as a way uh, to destabilize the West. And so ideologically, you know, I think we should be skeptical of Brexit on that front, though I agree, I think far too few people know about it to be bothered. And then there's the case of whether they actually did to any meaningful degree whether they did influence the EU referendum. And basically, Carol's given us um, enough evidence for us to seriously investigate it. Theresa May has even echoed plenty of the things that Carol and others have been saying. You know, she said that, you know, Russia is clearly trying to interfere uh, in UK politics and the politics of the West. But the fact is, as the Russia report said when it was belatedly released in July 2020, that the government has done nothing whatsoever to try to investigate whether has Ru- Russia has interfered or not. So Andrew Neil and the likes are calling Carol a conspiracy theorist when no serious investigative work from the powers that be has actually taken place into Russian interference, which I think shows their ideological strain and how they view the story regardless of the evidence. Interesting point, uh, Sam. And uh, of course, the Russia report, uh, as highlighted by the Joint Intelligence and Security Committee, the, the Russia report highlighted the fact that the kind of potential or possible influence of Russia in the EU referendum hadn't been investigated, had he? I mean, it was. The, I mentioned the information. You know, the Information Commissioner's Office did do a, a three-year report, and that was looking at the involvement of uh, of Cambridge Analytica and in, its impact on the 2016 EU referendum. But the question of whether Russia specifically meddled or attempted to meddle with the EU referendum, it was a, a case of government looking the other way, not I mean, an incredible, willful lack of curiosity. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting reading back through the Russia report, and it points out a lot of things that we are now talking about. It points out um, the laundromat um, of, you know, Russian oligarchs processing their dirty money through the city of London, through London grad, in order to, uh, you know, in order to build a life, in order to stow away their cash and to launder their reputations um, in London. You know, the Russia report was talking about this. It was written in 2019, so it was talking about this um, three years ago. It also highlighted the problem of golden visas, which have only now belatedly been clamped down on by the UK government. And so when that same report is saying, you know, there are questions to be asked as to the influence of Russia in the referendum and we haven't investigated, considering it was so on the ball on these other issues... Um, it seems a massive oversight that the government, although we can all understand why they're not doing it, um, it's a massive oversight that they're not looking into it. What do you make of that then, Ian? Yeah, can't disagree, can I? Um, can I make one point on the refugee um, question as well? Just You to... can indeed, because we're <laughs> going to speak to uh, Lou Calvi in a moment from Refugee Action, so it's a, a very timely comment. Go on, <laughs> go on make it in. Well done. Yeah, no. <laughs> No problem. You're a, you're a professional, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I've done various bits of this before, Adrian. Um, can I just say, I, I've got a mixed heritage, and I recently found out I was Ukrainian Jewish uh, on one part of my family. So this goes quite close to me. And 
what I see now from the government is something that I thought we'd left behind in the 30s. Um, I don't know if you're aware of the story of the St. Louis um, ship with the Jewish refugees that was refused portage across the world and went back to Germany and most of those got killed. It's exactly the same now for us. In the UK, to say you need a visa to come in is, to me, abhorrent. Okay? It's as simple as that. If there's security concerns, do stuff when they get here. Do put them into an hotel, mark them up, register, whatever you need to do, but let them in if they want to come in. Yeah, I think the suggestion is that going forward, it may be the case that the biometric testing is done after arrival in the UK. But, but... I'm not sure about that. Let's bring in Lou Calvey. Uh, Sam Bright, thank you very much indeed. That's a, a really fascinating primer on why Andrew Neil should apologise to Carol Gadwalla. I should stress, by the way, that via the medium of Twitter, I did invite Andrew Neil to come on Byline Radio. That offer stands. He may have been busy. He may not have seen the tweet. I thought it was appropriate to send it via Twitter. You've been blocked, by the way, haven't you, Sam? For I have. I have. I'm not holding my breath on an apology, Adrian. <laughs> but good effort. Good effort asking him. Well, I don't think I've been blocked yet, but uh, I don't want to be blocked. I want to have the conversation with Andrew Neil. I think it would be brilliant if he came on and at least addressed the issues. I mean, he may disagree that he needs to apologise. That's fine. But I would love to hear Andrew Neil. So, Andrew Neil, the door is open for you any day of the week, Monday to Friday from noon here on Byline Radio. Thank you, Sam. Cheers, Andrew. Speak again. That's the investigations editor of Byline Times, Sam Bright. You can hear, read him at the Byline Times on the Byline Times website, bylinetimes.com. That's where you'll also find out how to subscribe to the monthly Byline Times newspaper, which funds the website, also helps fund Byline TV, the Byline Times podcast and Byline Radio. Right. Luke Alvey, sorry, I've kept you waiting there a while while I've ranted on. Welcome along, how are you? I'm good, thank you, how are you all? Yeah, great to have you on, and you've mastered the technology now. (laughs) (laughs) It's a whole dark art to me, but I'm learning, I'm learning. It's a brilliant thing though, Luke, it is a brilliant (laughs) thing, and it, it means that you and I can chat and we'll have this conversation now live to the many people who are listening across the world, by the way, not just in the UK, and then we'll put it up on the Byline Times podcast so thousands more can listen to it. It's a, it's, it's a wonderful thing. It's a moment. You're making of... me nervous now. You're making me nervous. <laughs> I was going to say it's a moment of liberation. It's a radio <laughs> revolution that you're part of. <laughs> so um, I thought that was it. Talk me through. I'm, I was going to pick on something, pick up on something Sam said, but talk me through from your point of view then, from Refugee Action, what you make about the government's £350 month and offer to householders to home Ukrainian refugees. Oh, our principal, um, our principal situation at the moment is one of utter confusion uh, and quite a lot of concern. Um, but equally, we're trying to be optimistic about it. Um, I think the confusion stems largely from the fact that there's been absolutely zero discussion with any of the NGOs that have experience in working with displaced people in uh, in the UK. No dialogue from, from the various government departments at all in the lead up to the weekend. Um, and, so and would those... you normally expect that, Lou, if there was a big policy initiative around yeah. I mean, yeah, particularly something as unprecedented as this. I mean, you know, this government's never tried anything like this before. So surely they would they would want to talk to the people that, that do this sort of work day in, day out. And 
and, and develop a scheme that was alive to the risks around it, that's the real concern. If you're not talking to people, how are you going to do this safely? We know that refugees are some of the most vulnerable people in the in, in the world. We know that if you're not born in this country, you're at much greater risk of exploitation, of uh, being in really, really dangerous and difficult situations. Um, so, look, you know, we absolutely urgently want to see more Ukrainians getting access to safe routes to the UK. We absolutely want to see more people from lots of other nationalities to have access to safe routes to the UK. We should be mindful that there's still no safe route for people from Afghanistan to reconnect and reunite with family and friends in the UK. Very few safe routes for people from Syria and and and, and nothing for the people of Yemen that, that are experiencing significant conflict over there. So we applaud the fact that the government are looking at um, exploring um, options that can offer scale and pace but that scale and pace can't come at the expense of safety. And also, what's happened to our refugee and asylum systems then? I think it's telling that this scheme is being led by DLUC and Michael Gove. This, pre- the, this is the, the levelling up yeah. department in government. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Where's Preeti Patel? Where's the Home Office? Why can't we offer refugee resettlement spaces to Ukrainians? Why can't we just facilitate access to Ukrainians to our asylum system? Why have we got to develop a whole new bespoke programme? Is the state of refugee protection in the UK so damaged by this Tory government that it can't extend an offer to respond to a crisis situation in Europe? Well, seemingly so. And that's worrying. That's an interesting point about the Department for Leveling Up. Uh, Do you read something into that in terms of where refugees may be placed, if there is a a broader system for for placing refugees? Is it an indicator perhaps that Boris Johnson simply doesn't trust Priti Patel and the Home Office with the job? I I think I'm past the the stage of trying to figure out what Boris Johnson's (laughs) thinking about. Um, But we can speculate. I mean, of course, we will speculate. Uh, At this time, we've got Tory flagship policy, the anti-refugee bill, the the new borders bill that has been their absolute flagship policy around uh, immigration and refugee routes. At precisely this moment, of a of a of a refugee um, of, of a refugee situation in Europe, that of overwhelming numbers, the government is in the final stages of trying to push its bill through. That's gonna essentially don't forget that bill has no pledge for refugee resettlement in the UK. One of the it be the first year for, for as long as I can remember that we haven't pledged any number to to refugees resettling in the UK. And the second element of that bill is it pretty much destroys the asylum system and it it makes claiming asylum in the UK even more difficult and and indeed proposes to criminalise it. Now, when you think about the fact that over the past couple of weeks since the crisis in Ukraine started, we've talked a lot about visas, we've talked a lot about family visa schemes, now we're talking about British people opening up their houses... 
the, the, the words that have been absent from government around the dialogue of Ukraine has been the words of protection. We have not heard from them once that sees the people from Ukraine as refugees with well-founded fear of persecution, with a need to claim asylum or to look for other protection under the Refugee Convention. And I think it's very interesting that the government are very carefully ensuring that they're not drawing a connection in public consciousness between the people from Ukraine and the concept of refugees, because all we've heard from them for the last three few years is anti-refugee they've they've talked about people crossing the channels as illegal migrants as economic migrants as somehow criminal um and they yet they have a situation here where the public are starting to cut through we're starting to see the public understand why why people make those channel crosses they understand now that you need to be in the UK to claim asylum and you cannot get a visa to claim asylum. And we've seen them use that visa system as a way of throttling the number of people from UK and being able to enter to the UK. So I think there's a very deliberate attempt to construct a, a narrative around Ukrainians that isn't one of protection. And that's why we're seeing things like D-Luck leading on this conversation. Mm. We're seeing so, so, sorry, visa so, uh, and immigration system. I understand system. correctly what you're trying to say then, and, and not because you haven't articulated it <laughs> well, but just because I'm a bit slow. You're effectively saying that refugees from Ukraine are being treated as a special case and in a different way than people also legitimately fleeing persecution in Afghanistan in Syria and Yemen. Thank you. Yes, that's precisely what I'm saying. Um, let's break that down. Uh, people from Afghanistan got offered uh, access to a refugee resettlement scheme. There were two bespoke refugee resettlement schemes for people from Afghanistan operating in the UK at the moment. Uh, the people from Syria got offered bespoke access to a Syrian resettlement scheme. That was David Cameron, who pledged 20,000 resettlement spaces over five years, you, you might remember, uh, which we, we, we finalised in, in 2021. Um, we also did the evacuation of people from Afghanistan. Um, the people from Afghanistan and Syria... Uh, don't get meaningful access to family reunion. There are lots of problems with the way that the Home Office operate their family reunion scheme. Broader population, um, people from Yemen, um, uh, all of the other sort of conflicts in the world and, and, and the protection needs of others in the world, at the moment, they don't have any meaningful routes to safety in the UK. We, we have a global resettlement scheme called UKRS in the UK, but... Uh, as I said, I uh, alluded to earlier, there's no quota for that in the UK at the moment. So uh, there's lot, not a lot of people gaining access to that. Um, so the, the rest of the people in the world, the only way they can get protection at the moment in the UK is to make a dangerous crossing because they don't have a visa and they can't get a visa uh, and to claim asylum when they physically set foot in the United Kingdom. So what we're seeing in Ukraine is the government aren't using any of their refugee resettlement routes that they used for Afghanistan, that they used for Syria. They could immediately activate their global UKRS system for Ukrainians. They've chosen not to do that. They're not meaningfully allowing Ukrainians access to the asylum system because instead they're choosing to grant a family visa, which is an immigration device. It's not a protection device. It's very interesting that we're not seeing any of those usual and typical protection routes being extended to Ukrainians. 
that offers Ukrainians some better connections to the UK, i.e. through the family visa scheme. But it also offers them less access to the UK because they're not being given resettlement. And one of the key questions around the new sponsorship scheme for Ukrainians is, what status are they going to have? Because status is really important when it comes to claiming benefits, when it comes to getting access to universal credit housing payments, the, the commitment for hosts that we've, we, we've understood from reading the newspapers is they're only going to have to commit to accommodate that Ukrainian family for six months. So what happens in six months' time? How are they going to be able to secure their own accommodation? What level of benefits are they going to have access to? Are they going to have the right to student funding if they want to go to university? Um, are they going to have the right to eat free ESOL classes? These are all questions that tie to status and what mm, type of status uh, they're coming uh, in uh, Really good and thought-provoking and, and, and quite a troubling analysis, uh, Lou, I have to say. Uh, before I let you go, let me just ask you one further question about the kind of support that people fleeing this war zone will need. Oh, um, the first uh, thing I would say is it's hugely variable. Uh, I've learned in you know the 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 many years that I've been doing this work um, that no refugee is the same. Refugees are absolutely like every other person, individuals, um, and some of them will. Uh, we learned through the. I was I was involved in the evacuation of Afghanistan, and some of the people that arrived uh, were still working. They were still in jobs, and they're still working from their hotel rooms now. Um, and you know that they, they they speak English and they're they're they're, they're quite close to, to being able to to rebuild their lives in the UK, have good family links connections. Um, uh, others are really very very vulnerable. Um, uh, you know, in the Afghan hotels, for example, we're seeing a lot of people with uh, that are really whose mental health is really starting to deteriorate. Um, a lot of support around the trauma that they've suffered. Um, the other thing to bear in mind is when we've seen historically when re refugees are forced to flee en masse, as we're seeing in Ukraine, as we've seen in Afghanistan, as we've seen in Yemen, what often happens is you see large amounts of family separation. Uh, people literally take what they can and they run in different directions. They lose touch with family members or they may have even lost family members to, to the violence that, that they're fleeing. So depending on the circumstances of that individual, they're going to have a really variable support need. I have every, I have every um, hope that this sponsorship scheme, for those families that are less damaged through their displacement, would work really, really well. Um, you know, it's 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 some temporary accommodation, some time to reset yourself, reorientate yourself, and um, uh, you don't necessarily need that much support to really cover from your trauma. But for many, many Ukrainians, this is not going to be enough. They're going to need access to mental health support. They're going to need access to family tracking and tracing services so they can reconnect with family members. They may need a lot of ESOL support to learn the language and just support to orientate themselves to where they are in the UK. Simple things like how to access the post office and you know, which buses to catch. It really varies with the individual. One size does not fit all. Usually community support, refugee sponsorship is not new. What's new is the the, the D-luck leading on it and, you know, £350 and doing it at scale and pace. 
Refugee sponsorship has existed in the UK for about five or six years. And typically it takes around 150 refugees a year. Um, and it works really well as a complementary pathway, as a, as a complementary offer to a mainstream resettlement and asylum service. Resettlement and asylum, or resettlement principally, is much better suited to those more complex high support refugees, which will probably be quite high numbers, with a community sponsorship scheme sitting alongside that, working with those refugees that perhaps don't quite need as much support as others. That's how it usually works. Um, obviously, we're not looking at that here because we haven't got a resettlement offer for Ukrainians. I'm thinking we might lo have lost the host, so I might just tell a few uh, knock-knock jokes. You've got me back. It would have been good to hear your knock-knock jokes. Uh, that, that, that was my my uh, that was me failing to use the technology there. <laughs> Lou, thank you so much. Um, now that you've mastered the technology, maybe I'll keep mastering it as well. Uh, but we're welcoming you back another time. Thank you so much for You're your welcome. time. You're welcome. Thank you. you. That's Lou Calvi from uh, Refugee Action. Uh, let's speak to uh, Dennis Gansha now in uh, Kiev in Ukraine. Dennis has been a regular guest on Byline Radio and on the Byline Times podcast. Dennis, hello. How has the weekend in Kiev been for you? Yeah, hello. Nice to be able to talk to you. Uh, while I was listening to Lou, uh, there were some bombs falling not far from me, but still able to speak to you. So I personally myself uh, went to Kiev because I'm staying in the outskirts. I went to the center to see what is happening there. Uh, I was near Irpin, probably you've heard that this is one of like the biggest uh, fronts of Russian and Ukrainian war. And I would say that it's very noisy up here uh, near Bucha, Irpin, uh, but the city is ready. The city is ready to big defense. The city is ready to fight the Russians back. Uh, so we are probably entering uh, one of the most active phases of war, and I think it will be the final one, but it's hard to predict. The suggestion is that Russia is looking to encircle Kiev. Is, is that the understanding in the city? Uh, you know, uh, we've been hearing that Russians will encircle Kiev for 19 days already. Uh, I was told by many friends from the West that Denis ran away from Kiev, something disastrous would happen. Uh, Russians tried, they tried to come from the eastern part of Kiev, but they received a very warm welcome by our army. And by a warm welcome, I mean that they were fought back and uh, like tens of tanks were destroyed. So... I would say that there is no way Russians can seize Kyiv because uh, everybody there is prepared for the defense of the city. And even more, if somehow they manage to totally encircle Kyiv and cut it off of uh, food supplies, Kyiv is ready to stay for two weeks with food, with everything needed. Mm, but uh, it's still a very... Very difficult and, I suppose, unknowable situation. I, I'm not sure if you're aware, Dennis, that the UK government has been talking over the weekend about an additional scheme for refugees from Ukraine. At the moment, if you are Ukrainian and you have a family member in the UK, you can 
seek to obtain a visa and come and settle in the UK, at least for a, a period of time. But the suggestion is now as well that ordinary households in the UK will be given a certain amount of money each month, £350, and they will, if they accept that money, then have a member, a, a Ukrainian refugee, to come and settle with them. What do you think of that? Mm, I, uh, of course, UK is very far from Ukraine, and before war it was hard for us to travel to you. Um I haven't heard, I do not have friends who have fled to the United Kingdom because most of my friends are right now in Poland, Austria, Germany, whatever, so it's hard to comment really. Mm. But it's really good that more and more countries are thinking of how they can help Ukrainian refugees. Uh, but it's not like my case because my family is there, here, I am here, I'm continuing my resistance as much as I can, my my biggest friends, my like best friends, they're here. Uh, so it's like not 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 the very big case for me, fortunately or not. Yeah, you'll be saying that. I'll come back to you in a moment, Dennis. Just to say, if you want to request a microphone, if you have want to have a chat, if you want to comment on something that you've heard Sam Bright saying or Lou saying, Lou Calvi from Refugee Action, or that Dennis is saying, by all means, request a microphone. And um, before we disappear around one o'clock, we will try and let you on. Of course, uh, if you're listening to this on the podcast, you won't be able to request uh, a microphone, but I think you get the general picture. But if you do want to speak up, now is the time. Just to remind you that this is Byline Radio. I'm Adrian Goldberg. And if you want to spread the word about Byline Radio, please do so. And if you want to support our daily broadcast, we're on every day, Monday to Friday at noon, telling you what the papers don't say, then if you want to support that work, please take out a subscription or a membership to the Byline Times. In return, you'll get a monthly newspaper, which is really, really, really well written. Uh, but you'll also be supporting the work of our newsbreaking website, bylinetimes.com, Byline TV, the Byline Times podcast and Byline Radio. So uh, your money really does go a long way. So please support by taking out a subscription or a membership. Go to bylinetimes.com for more information. Uh, Dennis, you're talking about the situation there in Kiev or, or just outside Kiev where you are at the moment. What is daily life like? What do you do? Can people go to work? I can't imagine that people do. How do people shop? What's the situation? Um, so the situation is really like this, where it is possible. I'm speaking about like the places safer than Mariupol, Kherson, Kharkiv, People are trying to get back to some kind of normal life um, because right now our government um, is urging the parliament to accept some measures which will uh, reduce taxes for business, uh, which will totally reduce pressure on business so that uh, small and medium enterprises can get back to work. And personally, I myself is getting back to some kind of work, like working probably several hours per day because I do understand that I need to pay my taxes this month. <laughs> That's uh, incredible to think that there you are at, at war. <laughs> but uh, I suppose it underlines the resilience, though, of the Ukrainian state. There is still a functioning Ukrainian government, notwithstanding attacks on apartment blocks, on hospitals. There is a functioning state that can take your taxes 
and as well as funding the army, which of course is huge yeah. at the moment, but but can also fund in, fund basic social services as well. Yeah, this is of course it's hard. Of course, uh, like fifty percent of Ukrainians' companies they stopped their operations because there are a lot of people in the army. Some people are volunteering. Some people have like fled the country. But still, we do like um, we do understand that if it is possible, of course, if it is safe for you to do this, continue your work. And this is really amazing because I I already received some questions from people who I helped to uh, fled to the Western Ukraine. Dennis, how can I come back to Kiev? How can I come back to Kharkiv? So people like they do understand that uh, the victory is here to come in some visible future. Uh, they do understand that uh, the economy will be rebuilt. This is for sure because we're receiving so much support and money from the West. Um, and even the government, they have already, like, they, they plan to start uh, receiving applications of those Ukrainians whose uh, homes were destroyed by this war so that to make sure that they will rebuild their homes. Wow, that's so incredible. Are... And Danny, these negotiations are ongoing at the moment. We're, we're told there are peace negotiations between Ukraine and Russia. And obviously, we, we just don't know what the terms of those negotiations are. But I think there is some fear amongst some commentators in the West anyway, that we will end up with a de facto partition of Ukraine, that the eastern regions of Ukraine, which have been subject since 2014 to a Russian investigation by other means, that those parts of Ukraine may have to be ceded to Russia as part of a, a peace deal. Do you think that is likely? Do you think that is acceptable? I, I do think that the commentators have not watched our Minister of Foreign Affairs, who's trust that uh, not even one centimeter of Ukrainian land will be given up. Uh, we do right now understand that the advantage is on our side. And this war must be ended with uh, Ukrainian terms. Because what I really want to say to you, if somehow, but I don't really believe in this, our government managed to agree on Russian terms, Ukrainians will go and protest and demand that we finish this war with bringing back our, our territory. We do not want more. It's just speaking about our eastern regions, Crimea back, and many, many more things. And you, of course, come from the east, for people who haven't heard us chatting before. You come from Kharkiv, and you've had to flee from Kharkiv to the edge of Kiev now. But you believe that Kharkiv and all of the areas close to the Russian border must remain Ukrainian, they're not negotiable. Of course, of course, for sure. And even Crimea is no negotiable right now. Mm. Dennis, it's been great to speak to you again. Uh, please stay safe. Solidarity with you from Byline Radio. We'll speak to you again very soon. And thank you to everybody who's been listening. Please spread the word about these broadcasts via social media. We will be posting this episode of Byline Radio and what the papers don't say, I hope, uh, very soon on the Byline Times podcast. But in the meantime, thank you very much indeed for listening. We'll see you again at 12 tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.